Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Egan Lee. Spirituality exists in every work of fiction, in some form or other, but most often manifests as divinity. Gods and goddesses never seem to go out of fashion. Why do authors turn to a god, or a pantheon of gods, to articulate this spiritual urge? And out of all the pantheons, the Norse gods in particular certainly seem to be enjoying a revival. Tonight we have not one, but two authors joining us to talk about this incredible mythology, the nature of gods and the roles we require them to inhabit in our fiction. Hannah, Genevieve, could you please introduce yourselves to our listeners? Hello, I'm Hannah Long, H.M. Long, um, and my book is called Hall of Smoke. It's an adult epic fantasy, which definitely has some Norse mythology, Viking vibes. It was very much an inspiration for the world. Um, I live in Canada, and I am very excited to be joining tonight. And hi, I'm Genevieve Gornicek. My debut novel, The Witch's Heart, reimagines Norse mythology from the perspective of the giantess Angerboda, who's kind of a little-known um, character from the myths. And I am from the States. Excellent. And I just thought, since your, book, your books were both kind of out roughly at the same time, and they have these similar themes, it would be really great to get you both on here at the same time uh, for what I hope will be a really interesting discussion. I'm sure it will be. Thank you. We're happy to be here. (laughs) Thank you for having us. Okay. So as you've both explained, you have both written books um, inspired by uh, aspects of Viking or Norse myth. What is it about this particular mythology that you think makes it appeal to modern audiences? So I think a lot of it is um, the fact that the gods are so human and they're so flawed and i think that um like not just modern audiences but audiences like back in the day i I think we can see a lot of ourselves in them and that's what makes them appeal to us kind of across the board yeah i'd agree um the norse gods tend to come across at least in the form that they've been handed to us by like marvel and media and stuff like that it's very palatable like it's they're very accessible and they're very human um and i think a lot the aesthetic just appeals to people i think a lot of what people think of when they think of norse mythology isn't necessarily like a super historical or factual thing um it's more just the the vibe that media has given them and people enjoy it the like furs and the north and the mountains and ships and stuff like that I just it's just interesting that you mention that Hannah with like the furs and the the basically the, the like the aesthetic um you'd be surprised how many people like if when you know I'm at a at, at an event dressed in like this historically accurate you know garb and people come up and they want to join and then they find out that they they can't wear all of this stuff from the movies and the TV shows because it's not historically accurate and then their interest is just like Phew. You're saying people are shallow and uh, only attracted to uh, beautiful <laughs> historical costumes. No, no, no way. No, no. I, mean, I, 
I also like love that aesthetic. Like, not even gonna lie. Like, give me, give me Skyrim, give me all of it. But just in terms of like when you're trying to be like, oh, like this is, you know, um, what they might have actually worn back then. Like, we kind of have a, a decent idea, and it didn't involve like studs. So I got um, distracted the other day when I was supposed to be working and I was reading an article about the Bridgerton um, corsets and that (laughs) upset me because like, okay, I get that lots of these things are not historically accurate with the costumes, but in, they pointed out that they had better bosoms in the Regency period. Why were they flattening them? They're supposed to be up there and like nipples out and everything. And I was very disappointed that we didn't have more accurate uh, bosoms in Bridgerton because who doesn't love a great bosom? Anyway, there's a sidetrack from me. (laughs) No, like that, that, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, like there's, there's a difference. I know that sometimes like changes are made just to kind of like fit the aesthetic, but it's sometimes cool to see historical accuracy depicted in movies and TV. Like, and sometimes you go like, Oh my gosh, they really did have that. Where sometimes it's like, can I just have one show? Can I just have one show with period accurate costumes? Don't get me wrong. Want to want to stress it again that I I I enjoy the grim dark aesthetic like hardcore, but um, the Vikings wore bright colors, and they they made their clothes out of wool and linen, and it sometimes it sometimes I think it would be cool to see that kind of stuff. I very much agree. <laughs> What do you think, um, you know, since we've been talking about the Vikings and, you know, everyone um, seems to be kind of quite into whether they have an accurate idea of, of you know, of this uh, particular culture or not, um, it's quite a different um, aesthetic. It's quite a different set of gods from, say, the Greek gods. And, you know, obviously we've been through, um, you know, well, they seem to be going for revival as well. I mean, First, I was going to say Percy Jackson, but then I'm going to say Hades because, you know, like I was playing that yesterday and I'm like, well, who would have thought the Greek gods, like, we still can't leave them alone? Um, do you think, like, there's something about Norse mythology that sets it apart, that, that, that there's, there's something that makes it distinct from other types of mythology? Like, I feel like they're... You know, it has a very different, it's not just the aesthetic sense. I think you began to touch upon it early on when you said that those particular gods were more human that they have, you felt that they were kind of more, they're more flawed. They they didn't, you know, present themselves as typically um, kind of all powerful, all seeing, all knowing, and that's why people feel quite drawn to them. Yes. So um, that's a great question. So I, despite what I may have said about the grim dark aesthetic, like it really does come from somewhere, and that somewhere is in Norse mythology everyone dies at the end. Like, that's not a spoiler. Um, and I don't, I can't think of other mythologies where that happens. Like, like the gods are not only completely fallible, they do have these, these, you know, golden apples of youth from that one story. Um, but they are killable. Like they do all, all die at the end. So, um, I think that really makes it unique. You kind of don't think about Ragnarok really as being part of the mythology, but of course it is. It's just mm-hmm. that it's bringing it's it's bringing back um kind of like um when I was reading Gospel of Loki and the way that you know the ending. So it's like spoiler, you know, this isn't going to end well. Um, and how do you write a book to, that keeps the tension 
um, alive when you kind of know how it's all, all going to end. And that's the thing about that um, particular mythology. It's really interesting that what an interesting relationship they have with their own mortalities, considering they're gods. Yes, 100%. You mentioned the Greek gods earlier, and I was thinking that in terms of sort of Greek and Norse legends, they all kind of have a bit of a rip-roaring time, really. They're all going around sleeping with each other and turning into horses or swans or this, that, and the other. Um, But it's interesting what you said about the Norse gods having an end, whereas the Greek and Roman gods kind of didn't. They just sort of vanished. So do you think that element of mortality really does kind of bring it home more than, say, the gods who just go out and have a load of fun and don't have any kind of ending? Do you think that's why a lot of people are sort of attracted to write about the Norse gods rather than the Greek gods, which just kind of tail off? Well, like the first thought that pops into my mind is it's that bit of a tragic aspect. And I think people are attracted to that in a way. Um, yeah, just knowing that it's going to end, that there's this great this great catastrophe coming and everyone gets that glorious death. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's the element of tragedy to that. Right. And it's it's also been super interesting to me that the quote unquote highest god in the Norse pantheon, like, is the god of 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 death and war and poetry. But, you know, Odin has these associations with death, like the slain warriors who go to Valhalla. So um yeah, I think that's that's also a pretty unique thing about about the mythology. So we wouldn't be breaking the glass slipper if we didn't start thinking about um, some of the questions surrounding gender and particularly women um, in mythology. So while there are certainly female gods and warriors um, and other mythical feminine figures, um, do you feel that their identities are somewhat eclipsed by the larger than life masculine figures? I mean, we've already started talking about Odin and then obviously there's Thor, for example. Um, do you feel that this mythology has a tendency to glorify the male gods over the female gods? Or do you feel like we still see enough of them? We definitely don't see enough of the female goddesses. <laughs> we we just don't. Um, and so... You know, when I said that, like, the, the dead warriors go to Odin's hall, um, half of them actually go to Freya's hall. And I feel like a lot of people forget about that. Like, I didn't even mention it the first time when I was talking about Odin, like, a minute ago. But um, oftentimes, Freya is reduced to, like, the Norse Aphrodite. And that's not who she is at all. She is a goddess associated with sex and war and death. She is fierce. And, yeah, I... I agree as well. I really think the <clears throat> the female characters in Norse mythology are definitely overshadowed by the male. Um, they always, to me, and this is again in my my limited my research, my limited exposure. This isn't going to be everybody's view, but I always feel like they're just adjacent. They're there. They they have they can have prominent roles, but it's always the men that the focus drifts back to. I don't know how much either of you have read into sort of the the real source materials and and so on but do you think that maybe the kind of more modern interpretations or the or the stories that we are more familiar with are the ones that are focusing more on men or or was that kind of there in the original in the Norse stories because you know I wonder if it's it's through our lens that we're looking at it in that particular way 
No, it it is not really in the stories. And I don't know if that's just because, you know, we've lost material over the past, you know, 800 years, or because, you know, the authors who wrote it didn't care what was going on with the goddesses and the female figures in the mythology. Um, but a lot of it just isn't there. Like we, we have a lot of goddesses who are just like name dropped and we don't know anything else about them, you know, like lists and lists of like, Oh, here are like Frigg's handmaidens and here's like one word about their associations and that's it. So it just, it makes me think that, that we've lost a lot, you know, either over time or, um, it just wasn't important to the authors to write down, unfortunately. But like, there are clues. I feel like that some of these female figures, both in the myths and like the legends and the sagas, that they they were a little bit bigger back then. Um, we just didn't. We just don't have the stories, unfortunately. Um. So, where women do appear in Norse mythology, do you think that their stories are more often defined by the men around them? Say, you know in those roles of husbands, fathers, um, the sons they bear. I mean, obviously, Genevieve, you're probably a good person to ask about this since you have given voice to a long-neglected female figure from Norse mythology. Um, And I think you might have mentioned that she really has, um, you know, there's very little source material, um, you know, to draw on. So would you say that, you know, without... Um, you know, your interpretation of Angra Boda's story, she actually um, is more defined by what happens to her and the fact that she has this association with Loki and she has these children by him. Yep. Um, because that's all, that's all we do know about her. Everything else was, you know, me taking liberties or drawing from other characters in the mythology. So yeah, I think oftentimes the, the women are defined by their association associations with men. Or the, their children, or their other, you know, kin members. There's a kind of movement at the moment, isn't there, to reclaim, um, you know, some of the, the the stories like the Odyssey, like the Iliad, the great epics, um, to be able to kind of step back and say, yeah, but they were other players in these stories, and they haven't had a chance to to speak. Um, you know, that's why I like Circe so much, um, and I like the idea of of women kind of stepping back into these stories and say we were always here it's just that you know the society's default has never been on us and it has never given us a chance to you know say what really happened um and and you know of course these are stories they're shaped by the dominant social narratives of the day um but i feel like because it's because it's myth and myth is something that is myth is constantly evolving and i feel like we have to tell these stories um, you know, a new for each generation. So I love the fact that there is this movement at the moment to to reclaim these lost voices. Um, and, you know, this is kind of some of the things we're talking about tonight, that, you know, Norse mythology is very famous, lots of people know about it, but there's, you know, very few, um, possibly very few stories um, in there that actually um, centre women. Right. And it's it's really interesting that, you know, you say that these stories are you know, every generation kind of tells these stories. And I I think it sticks out like what's relevant to us um, when we tell them. So yeah, this movement is super interesting and I just love it. I love it. 
I wondered if I could put a question to Hannah, who, whilst inspired by Norse mythology and possibly other mythology as well, you've kind of created your own pantheon. So when you were doing that, which bits did you decide, oh, I'm going to steal that from the Greeks, I'm going to steal that from Norse mythology, I'm going to steal that from Christianity? What, you know, what did you choose and what did you leave out when creating your own brand new pantheon? So I didn't go about it terribly like intentionally. <laughs> I'm very much like when I write, I'm, I'm a discovery writer. I don't world build ahead of time. I kind of just let things happen on the page. So when a scene came up that I needed to introduce a deity, I would just put what was in my head down on paper. So there wasn't like this me sitting back and going, okay, I'm going to look at this mythology and look for inspiration, in this mythology. It kind of just was a combination of all my favorite mythologies just sitting in my head and then producing um, a deity. But that being said, I did very intentionally move away from having direct parallels with existing mythologies. Like, um, I didn't want to have an exact, like, a Thor, but I have, a like, a goddess of storms who's also associated with, like, harvest and stuff. So it's different. So there's, like, a goddess associated with thunder, but she's not Thor. And those sort of things. Um, yeah, so it was it was essentially just a lot a history of loving mythology, um, kind of just let go. <laughs> and uh, I just let it do what it wanted to do in the context of the story to create the new characters. Thinking about taking things away from mythology, putting in your favorite bits and all that kind of jazz. Genevieve, when you came to choose your main female protagonist and all of her associated cast, what made you choose Angraboda in particular out of all of the characters you could have chosen from Norse mythology? So I actually wrote this story while I was taking a class on Norse mythology at university. And I just noticed when I was reading the Eddas, which are our two main sources for Norse mythology, um, that a lot of the the women in the kind of creepy background women had some things in common, some associations in common. And they all kind of converged at, at I mean, in my interpretation, Angraboda. Um, she kind of shares characteristics which, with a bunch of um, other women. And I kind of wrote the story from there. Um, she was one of those characters where I I thought there's got to be more to her than just this. I mean, like she has kids with Loki. She was always just so interesting to me. Like the Greek gods, the Norse gods do often fall into archetypal patterns of behavior. Like we have the trickster, the earth mother, the warrior, etc. Possibly the archetype that is um, most famous and most beloved of, uh, you know, readers and viewers, anything um, is is the trickster, like Loki. Loki is massively popular. He's probably the most popular character in the Thor films. Um, I mean, who, who doesn't love him? But I think he is possibly also the most interesting character um, and he, because from his very archetypal nature is hard to predict what he's going to do next. Um, and since both of you have got these you know, well, obviously, Genevieve really does have Loki um, in her book. And Hannah has a character who very much reminded us of Loki when we were reading the book. Um, I wanted to ask you about the this particularly um, archetypal trickster character and kind of what drew you both to this set of behaviours and having a character like this in your books. Okay, um, in regards to Ogum, um, Holosmoke is a 
as a book is, a, is fairly dark. It's got some darker themes. It's, it's kind of emotional. Um, I really needed a lighter character. Um, so I brought in Ogum, who is the trickster archetype character. Um, and without being too spoilery, he, he causes trouble. He does these, these things, but for me, it was the lightness that he brought in, um, the unpredictability that I could have him be more humorous. Um, and yeah, actually, it really that humor aspect, bringing, being able to pull that into an otherwise rather dark book. Do you think it would be possible to have a pantheon without a trickster character? Because they kind of turn up in so many mythologies. Maybe it's not putting him in for humor. Maybe it's because if you don't put him in, it doesn't quite sound real. Yeah, I would agree with that. And uh, yeah, it also becomes a bit boring without a trickster character. You've got a lot of very powerful beings interacting. And of course, that creates drama. But if you have the trickster whose power really just like enables them to be extra tricky and extra troublesome. Um, yeah, I think it really completes a pantheon. And yeah, I would agree. I think you need you need someone like that. Yeah, and Loki especially is a good example of this and how that he manages to unite kind of the gods in in their dislike, really, because you were saying about gods being, you know, all powerful and they have to, you know, and if gods are they they're all as powerful as as each other, they do have a, a an uneasy alliance, you know, with having to kind of maintain this the status quo. And um, but Loki is a great example of, you know, someone they desperately need a scapegoat for so many of these things, and he just ends up being the scapegoat in loads of um, examples of these stories because, you know, he's the one thing, he's he's a, he's a variable and he unites them in his ability to be unpredictable, um, which I think that's what gives him the edge over kind of many of the other gods um, and it's certainly the edge in, you know, readers' opinions. I think that he would often be ranked as, as people's most popular god. Um, Genevieve, this is totally... Um, totally going to you and um, your question because obviously you've recreated Loki in the book I haven't kind of got that far in yet and I'm already really intrigued by his characterization um and how did you go I mean it's very it's difficult isn't it when you have to you you have this source text um you have some material to work with but you're well aware that it's it's thousands of years old um it's you know not a, a lot of it is the oral tradition and um, these stories uh you know, uh, even though they've been around for a long time, it's important to make them appeal to to readers today. Um, how do you go about uh, recreating a character as iconic as Loki? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, so a lot of, you know, reimagining or retelling myths is kind of trying to find character motivations. And um, it's trying to find character motivations like where there sometimes are none. So the, the Norse myths, like in their original form, are very straightforward about, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And they don't really give us a lot of background as to how the characters are thinking and feeling a lot of the time. Um, so basically, I just kind of tried to fill in those gaps. And it's it's so hard to like try to find motivation for a character like Loki, because it really could be anything. He he is such a, a variable Um yeah, so so I kind of approached it as okay, what would make the most sense in the context of this story, um, as told by Angerboda. So this is just an interesting point to kind of when I was thinking of um, about Loki and putting these questions together um, is 
this ability that Loki has to change his gender and his shape is this um is this aspect part of his very identity as the trickster is this is there power in an ability to shapeshift and not just to you know change one shape between like human and animal say but to actually be able to appear as as any gender that he chooses to is there a power in that that it seems quite a modern idea to me and so it's it's amazing to find it in a mythology as old as as Norse myth um, yeah, no, it, it is really interesting. And um, we, we don't have much evidence that Loki was worshipped during the Viking Age. Um, but Loki is an incredibly popular figure now, especially like for, for queer people, I think. There's a lot of interesting things going on in, you know, Viking Age gender studies that could be relevant for people today. I, I think a lot of the times people try to fit other people into boxes and Loki doesn't necessarily fit into a box, and that freaks some people out. But other people like embrace that aspect of him. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think that also comes back to talking about the the Norse and, and Vikings and so on feeling more real or more human in a way. And Loki certainly appeals to me on that level because he's not really trying to be some sort of all-powerful, all-knowing god. He's also not trying to be some kind of straight-up evil guy either. He's just kind of having fun and doing what entertains him. And and that that does appeal to me because that feels more human. Um, Loki is also the only, I would argue, the only character in the mythology that has like an arc. Um, the rest of them are kind of static and Loki is the one who not only drives a lot of the stories, but ends up switch like quote unquote switching sides by, you know, the chronological end of the mythology and, you know, is on the side of the giants or Jotnar during Ragnarok. So um Loki's just interesting all around. I'm sorry, I could talk forever about Loki. That was really interesting what you were saying about Loki kind of not fitting into a box. And it makes me think about some of the Greek goddesses in particular, like um, Athena and Artemis, who disprove more conservative ideas we have about women's powers. And obviously in Genevieve's book, we've got Angraboda, who is a strong, powerful woman who rules her own destiny. And in Hannah's book, we've got Ing, which is the goddess of war again something that you wouldn't necessarily associate with the Norse myths so I was just thinking whether the gods in Norse mythology and also in your books whether they stray from traditional types when it comes to how they portray women so for for Ing who is my goddess of war um, I, I actually did stray a bit more I wanted her to be because when, when you're talking about like Athena and stuff like that, like she is like, she's a goddess of war and like she defeats Ares. Um, but she does through, she does that more through like cunning and tact and strategy and being really smart and clever rather than like brute force and anger um, and stuff like that. And so Ing is actually more of an Ares type character. I wanted her to be that really that forceful, that anger. It's almost more typically masculine um and uh yeah i wanted her to just be that pure force of of anger and hatred to the point where she's a bit blind um and makes mistakes because of that yeah she's not like the she's definitely not the cunning um cunning athena 
I was just simply going to say I utterly agree, and that's what I picked up in in the book, that she was very much more the the visceral elements of war rather than the cunning and strategy that you would get with Athena. Yeah, and I really wanted that in a female character. Like, uh, like I said, I said before, like I don't go in terribly intentionally when I construct my characters, um, as in giving them a, a terrible amount of forethought. But I did give forethought to the elements of of femininity I wanted to put across in the book, and I wanted Aang to be this like wrath. That was what I really wanted her to be. I didn't want to give her any kind of any kind of gentleness, any kind of thing like that that you would normally associate with femininity. Like even in regards to her son, spoilers but it's not a great relationship. And yeah, I wanted that contrast. I think it's really important that we see women have those kinds of different personality types, especially when it comes to gods, which might sound weird because it's, you know, not human. It's it's very other. So if they're other, why not have them be other than, you know, what we see every day? But the thing is, if gods are meant to be kind of like the uber humans, you know, they're, they are above us in all ways, why do we have to then just reinvent the stereotypes that we have here on the planet with our society? Why can't the fem- you know, why can't the goddesses be absolutely ripped and like amazing and just as violent and vicious as the men and it always kind of annoyed me and obviously you know historically I could totally get why it's like that that you know a lot of the goddesses always were linked to things that were very feminine you know childbirth or you know mother nature earth growing things like that and I understand that from a historical perspective but if we're looking at something and creating our own narratives you know, in the style of or inspired by, I think it's great to see women get more opportunity to branch out and be something other than what they've always been restricted down to. Absolutely. So historically speaking, have we basically just said that gods are just as subject to the same gender-based allocation of power and abilities as we see in human heroes? Um, This is something we talk about a lot, you know, on this show about male power being brutal and physical and female power being intuitive and magical. Um, Is this a pattern that repeats like in our gods? um, And that's why we're, you know, it's why Hannah, for example, wanted to say, okay, no, I'm, I've got a chance to create my own pantheon of gods um, and I'm going to do something that uh, we don't usually see. Yeah, Lucy, I totally agree. I mean, you see so many human heroes and gods kind of having almost gendered roles. Um, And I really liked, Genevieve, in your book, how much you kind of walked away from that. And I really liked Angraboda having a a lot of power, so much power, in fact, that Odin, the the king of the gods, was like, hmm, I think I'm going to see if I can convince her to, you know, to teach me. And that's not really a role you see within pantheons where you've got the top male divinity going oh actually you know what this person over here is a bit smarter than me so I mean did you have fun playing around with these ideas of gender power or was it something that you actually found within the Norse Norse myth mythology itself oh that's absolutely in the mythology um Odin is such an interesting god in terms of of you know um gender and practicing quote-unquote women's magic um which like historically like 
men didn't practice that kind of magic, but I, I, I think Odin just got away with it because he's the highest of the gods, quote unquote. Um, but yeah, the, the Norse myths are, there's a, there's a lot to unpack with Odin. And um, yeah, I did, I did have fun with kind of, I, I think a lot of people might not be used to seeing, you know, the, the gods as like the, I don't want to say the bad guys, but as kind of like our, our protagonist's main antagonist. If you think about a lot of high fantasy, that's quite right. The gods are usually there to to help you. Um, or there is one god that is set against you. I really liked how you made it almost a family affair and you had this idea of a dysfunctional pantheon. Yeah, thank you. Um, but yeah, and like, you know, Angerboda has all this power, but she's still like, she likes being a mother. Like she she like fulfills traditional gender roles, but also doesn't like she's also kind of an in, in between character, I guess. Um, and then you have Scotty who I can talk about at length. Um, she's just the coolest and I love her so much. She was so wonderful. I just, I was so pleased without spoilers where that kind of ended up because I felt that you kind of got the ending I wanted, but at the same time you kept very true to the character and also to the general sense of North Norse myths and how characters would kind of you know exit from such stories thank you so much I really appreciate that she was probably my favorite to write um in the whole book just because like so much of her like came out of the myths it was like you know her her first the first time we see her she's like marching to Asgard like okay uh you guys killed my father so I'm about to throw down I've got my armor I've got my weapons um, who is going to compensate me? <laughs> or am I going to have to fight you all? It's just, that's just, she's she's an icon, I feel like. Particularly with the revenge story, whereby it is the daughter avenging the death of her father. Um, and I always felt in the Norse myth that she got a little bit cheated because they make a bit of a fool out of her, don't they? Um, in how she has to choose her husband and she still gets married off. But I really like that in the book, you kind of kept this idea of revenge being a spark that wouldn't go out as you would get in a male hero, but yes. very much in, in Skadi's case. Yes, yes, because I agree. Like, I don't necessarily think that her compensation was fair. Um, and I think that, you know, that would have rankled her. And I can't help but wonder what the authors, the original writers of the myths were trying to say about a daughter avenging a family member rather than, you know, a son, which happens in the Icelandic sagas all the time. Like, male kin members like have to have to avenge these deaths otherwise their their masculinity and their honor is called into question so um the fact that scotty in the myths is filling that role is just so interesting to me so is that another case then of women being allowed to step outside of the traditional gender roles yeah that has always really really fascinated me about you know viking age society um i am currently reading children of ash and elm by neil price and he brings up a really interesting point in i, th- I want to say chapter six um where he's talking about how how um women under circum- certain circumstances could step into male roles like have legal power and like kind of deal with their own affairs um, but if a man's wife died, he was expected to remarry. He wasn't expected to step into the, the, the female role and do the spinning and the cooking and the childcare, like 
well, I guess cooking sometimes because there's, you know, cooking instruments and male graves. Gendered grave goods is like a whole other other can of worms that I don't want to open right now. I'm sorry. But um, <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's really interesting that in, in, in some ways women did have a little bit more freedom, even though they had no legal standing. Um, there were certain circumstances in which they could um, fill their husband's roles. I find that really interesting because on the one hand, women are sort of denied power and often considered weaker, yet if they were considered capable of stepping into both roles in in a family or a household, whereas their male counterparts were not, that says something about the strength, ability, power of women over men. Yep. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah, like the versatility of of women um, being able to turn their hands to multiple endeavors and multiple roles. Yes, I mean it's well established that women are much better at multitasking. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally, <laughs> but yeah, going back to to the stories kind of in Norse mythology, and maybe we're beginning to approach why this particular like why this particular set of myths are so unusual and interesting um and maybe that's more to do with how we reinterpret them today i kind of feel like it, it is especially you know to, you know you said about people finding loki probably vastly more interesting today than they might have done when these tales were were first told around you know fires um I like the fact that we've said, you know, we can have female warriors. It's it's up to women to exact revenge. Um, you know, women can step into male roles. But you also have a character like Anger Boda, who you were saying is um, likes being a mother and, and and revels in this role, which is very much a, a woman's role. Um, and I like this idea of we finally got to the point where we're not putting women in boxes anymore. They're not, you know, simply... Um, they can be warriors, they can be mothers, um, that these things are not mutually exclusive. I really liked how a core part of Hesse's story in Hall Smoke by Hannah was her trying to find her identity and particularly identity of a goddess that we wouldn't necessarily think of as archetypal. Um, so I wondered if her situation was seen as a sort of a metaphor for the way that women have struggled against a patriarchal society that has shaped them in its preferred image. I was thinking particularly of the responses when she meets other cultures and how they all kind of look down on her because she is a warrior. And it's like, oh, we don't let our women fight. They all stay at home. So kind of what was in your mind, Hannah, when you were creating Hessa and the role she plays within that society and in, within the wider world? So when I was creating Hessa, I... I wanted her to be that female warrior, but I also still wanted her to be very human and accessible. I wanted her to be like the women I saw in, you know, that I see in my life who are, they're strong and capable and they get angry and they have tempers, but at the same time, they're, they're loving and they have these, um, they have still have vulnerabilities. Um, so I, I didn't like create Hessa as being a direct, Hessa and her journey as being directly against the patriarchy or something like that, but more just, I wanted her to be a woman doing things, getting them done without any of that burden on her. And when she does 
um, become, start to interact with a patriarchal culture, it's a completely new thing to her. She hasn't experienced that before. And that's honestly like just a fantasy aspect for me. <laughs> I was like, I just, I want that, that kind of just that assuredness of, I have a place in this world. I can be who I am in this world. Um, and then she just glimpses this other culture that looks down on her for it. Um, but it's at the side, right? I think you do really well at having a very feminine character that isn't just isn't just a male character that's being given a female slant. Does that make sense? It's like this whole idea of Ripley in Aliens being traditionally a male character, but would work equally well as a female character. I don't think that's the case with Hesser. I think she very definitely manages to combine her womanhood with her warriorhood as well. Yeah, that that was really important to me, and that's part of the reason. Like, I also include a um, a scene in Hall of Smoke where Hessa has her period, because I wanted that to be at the forefront. Her femininity is at the forefront. Like, I remember watching um, like The Last Kingdom, and the main character is Uhtred, and he's just he's kind of just I hate I kind of hate him. I still watch the series, but I was like, I just want a female character. I want a woman who is strong and capable. Um, and able to be this, this, this kind of protagonist, but is real and faces stuff that women face every day. Like just having your period and trying to be on a grand adventure and like take down the gods, but like you're still human, right? I really loved the, the, the period mentioned actually now, <laughs> now that you reminded me of it. And I was like, yeah, nodding. This is, this is good. Cause we just, it's stuff like that. I mean, I guess authors you know I did this myself in my trilogy I didn't really talk about going to the loo I mean like they obviously went to the loo so many times in that journey but you know like you either mention it or you don't um and I think it's a little bit different when it comes down to something like periods because like even in books that mention bodily functions as part of daily life the periods still get missed out (laughs) how is this how is this fair yeah, and it would impact you so much in the midst of like very dangerous uh, circumstances where you're really physically exerting yourself. Like it would have an effect. And I think like as women, we have a right to be able to talk about this and have it in our books with our female protagonists and have that be something else that they're conquering and they're enduring through. Since we we hardly ever have two authors on here at the same time, so I feel like we have a perfect um, an obligation even, um, for you to uh, help persuade uh, listeners and readers out there to um, give each other's books a try. So um, if I say to Genevieve, um, could you tell us um, why a reader would like to pick Hannah's Hall of Smoke up? Um, because it is about a, a kick-ass warrior who pisses off her patron goddess and goes on an adventure that makes her question everything she's ever known and believed in. I just, I just love it. Like it is like 100% my kind of book. Hall of Smoke is. I just love characters who have like, Hessa has, has such strong convictions and like everything that happens to her, like makes her question, like, am I doing the right thing? Like, wait, what if everything I've ever known is a lie? I'm like, Oh, I'm so here for it. Like sign me up. So Hannah, um, why should our listeners um, go out and pick up Genevieve's The Witch's Heart? Because The Witch's Heart is beautiful. 
it takes all the familiar um, Norse tales and gives them from the perspective of Angerboda. Um, Angerboda is the mother of monsters. She's a lover of Loki. She spends most of it in a cave, but you still get all these all the wonderful bits of, of the stories and legends that are all still coming to her. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't want to do any spoilers, but I mean, Ragnarok and you just, there's an incredible strength to Angerboda's character. Um, where she's a mother. She's, she's gentle, but at the same time, she is so very strong and she is so determined, um, especially heading into those last pages of the book. And I uh, needed Kleenex and I've ranted to Genevieve about that before. Um, but yeah, it's emotional, it's beautiful, and it is magnificent. Thank you. And you were at the top of my list of people that I now owe um, at least one box of Kleenex. Thank you very much um, for joining us, Genevieve and Hannah. Uh, I think it's been a really interesting discussion. And I hope that both Genevieve and Hannah have persuaded you to go out and check both Hall of Smoke out and The Witch's Heart. And The Witch's Heart will be out in the UK on May 4th. And Hall of Smoke um, is already available. So uh, do go and check out those books. Thank you very much for coming along, both of you. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.